0: Well, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to two different passages today. One is in Romans 13. The other is in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so please turn with me to those two different locations. Well, what I'd like to do today is just, just share with you a few thoughts that have been on my heart over these last couple of weeks. As I was quarantined in the little office basement of our home, I was reading a little, well, it's actually a big thick book by Wayne Grudem on, on theology. And I came across a few verses that I found very helpful. Now that we've concluded our series through the book of Acts, I'd like just to take a few Sundays with you and just offer a few isolated messages. And being that, we're approaching an election. It seems appropriate for us to consider God and the government. So I want us to take a look at a topical message today of what the Bible says about the government. We we see within the Scriptures of how we are to relate to God in a relationship, how we are to love one another, how we are to interact with our, our parents, our spouse, our children. The Bible actually has some things to say about how we are to interact with government as well. I came across a few verses that, that speak about how God cares for people. Listen to what Job 37.6 says. For to the snow, God, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour. And so in the coming days, when the snowflakes begin to fall here in Wisconsin, on the east side of Wisconsin, We should look out our windows as we're walking to our car, maybe just feeling those snowflakes hitting out on our face, and be able to conclude that these snowflakes are merely being obedient to God. God has told them to fall. And and consider what the psalmist said in Psalm 104, verse 14. It says, God, you caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. God is not only about precipitation, but God is also about vegetation. And one might say, hey, these things can be explained through science. Well, God uses the laws of science to bring precipitation as well as vegetation. And then we could see how God cares for us in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And these verses point out how God looks after us and how He cares for us. Another way He does that is by surrounding us with people. The children, God demonstrates his care for you by giving you that mom and dad or that person, that guardian, maybe a grandparent that is sitting next to you today. And another way he does that also is through government. God demonstrates his care for us by giving us government. Well, let's look at a few verses here in Romans chapter 13, and then I'll have you look at 1 Peter 2. Beginning in Romans 13, verse 1, the scriptures say, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment." on the wrongdoer. We see in these four verses that it is God who has given us authority. God who has given us a government. And we see here in verse 2 that to resist the government is to resist God. And we see also in verses 3 and 4 that the government is designed to punish evil and to promote good. Now if we just go over to 1 Peter chapter 2, we will see a few other verses that convey the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 says, Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do evil good. We might say the government, this might surprise you, was God's idea. The Bible speaks about the human heart as being deceitful above all things and desperately sick. God designed the government to restrain evil. I think back to when I was in fifth grade and I was in Mr. Smith's class there in Cobb Cook Elementary up in northern Minnesota. He is my favorite teacher. And I can remember when Mr. Smith would step out of the classroom, those 25 students within that classroom would quickly ensue chaos he might go down to the office, but that led to us throwing a football across from one side of the room to the other. It meant that we could start shooting spitwads. It meant that we could start having conversations that we would normally never have, and then we might even get out a stick of gum and start chewing it. But the moment Mr. Smith came back into that classroom, a holy hush came over it. And why was that? Is even as little children, we understood authority. And that that teacher was designed to punish evil and to promote good. Now, a thoughtful hearer this morning would say, okay, that's God's design for the government to promote good and, and to punish evil. Well, it would look as if our government has overflowed those banks. We have things like a Department of Education, a Department of Agriculture. We have a a government that's involved in retirement and, and health insurance and even mailing packages from one place to the other. But I would say that God's original design was to promote good and to punish evil. Now, there is a limitation to government. Government can punish evil, but it cannot address evil In the individual heart. So let me give you a third statement, and that is if you're following along in your outline, since government is comprised of sinful people, they inevitably fall short of God's design. Romans chapter 13 was written by Paul, 1 Peter 2 was written by Peter. And what was the government like during the first century as they were writing these words? It was far more evil than the American government today. In fact, slavery was on the books. One author I read this week said that one-third of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. It was believed within the government and enforced within the government. Not only that... You think President Trump has an ego? Consider the Caesar of this time. He demanded worship from everyone within that empire. And then thirdly, within this passage, we see the context as that there was one group of people that were discriminated against fiercely to the point where they were killed. They were the followers of Jesus. This is the government, this is the soil in which these seeds of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 were written. And so if there's a group of people that are in government and they reject God and God's ways, well then you would expect the government, the leadership to follow, wouldn't you? I think of what Jesus said in Matthew 20. He said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus was speaking about this sinful inclination that we would have. Those in leadership would seek to lord it over others. It has been suggested, I think, over the years and recent years that there's, uh, that, that many of the police, and I think we would probably say that no one here would say that all the police are, are sinless. That there are been a few that have taken advantage, that have lorded over there with, with the authority that they have. However, I think we would also say the vast majority of them are, are doing their job. I can remember times where I've gone on a mission trip and, and my perspective of the police changed because I can remember a time going in a capital city of this country. And as I was riding along with some other missionaries, we were pulled over by a policeman and we were racially profiled. And you know why? Because we were foreigners with light colored skin and they weren't trying to beat us or threaten to beat us rather. What we were told is they were hoping that we would bribe them. And that was what was accepted among the police force of that day. Kind of like the tax collectors of the the Gospels, where they would collect taxes not only for the government, but for themselves. And We saw firsthand where in some countries, the police force is so corrupt that that's what they would expect as well, to be bribed in order to allow your vehicle to, to move from the shoulder to go back on To the traffic, well, government is comprised of sinful people, and they will inevitably fall short of God's design. So we see this in our own government, do we not? We can consider a few different categories. The category of life. In in 1973, during the Roe versus Wade, the government, a part of the, the Supreme Court, ruled that made abortion legal. And as a result, nearly 62 million children have been killed since then. The Bible says of these children, You knitted me together in my mother's room, according to Psalm 139. Clearly the Bible speaks that a child is alive when they are in their mother's womb. And the, the murdering of children has, has been fiercely defended by the Democratic Party. At times, that they've declared that abortion should be safe and legal and rare, but now they advocate for taxpayers to pay for these killings. There was something called the Hyde Amendment that forbids taxpayers' federal funds to pay for abortions, and now that is being challenged to say, let's rid ourselves of that Hyde Amendment so that we can have more abortions. Not only life, not giving that child a chance to be born, but what happens once they are born. One of the major themes that we've had run through our society as a country is racism. The Bible speaks out against racism. And we see it through the pages of Scripture where all of us are made in the image of God and as a result have value. doesn't matter the color of our skin. And yet we see in the Old Testament where there's this rivalry between the Jews and the non-Jews. And even in the Gospels where there's Jesus that confronts racism when he goes in John 4 to the Samaritan woman at the well. And we covered through the book of Acts throughout this year the, the different challenges that that early church, these Jewish Christians face by bringing the Gospel to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. Racism is a sin, the Bible says, and it can only be eradicated through repentance and faith and receiving the grace of God and the power of God to change, to confess that sin, and then to seek reconciliation with other people. But if there is a secular government that denies God and denies God's way, it may see racism as a problem, but it will come about a solution in an entirely different way. One of the theories that is promoted is something called um, the critical race theory, which, which, which undergirds it by saying that there's not one race, there's not one group of people that are made in the image of God. Rather, there are two different groups of people. There are the oppressed, And the oppressors and salvation on this secular theory is not through repentance and faith in Christ, but by turning over the structures of our society. Another element of this critical race theory is something called intersectionality. You might not know that word, but I suspect you know the definition. In the 1960s, we celebrated what the U.S. government did when they affirmed that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you can hear Bible theology there in that Declaration of Independence. They are created equal, endowed by their Creator. These, this is Bible language. And, and when the Civil Rights Act was passed, that was the right thing to do, the, to say, yes, everyone has equal rights. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. But in recent days, that same act has now served as a vehicle to expand rights to those who participate in same-sex marriage as well as transgenderism. These rulings will set the Bible-preaching church and the secular government on a collision course. Now, religious liberty is not only the, the freedom that we have to assemble in a church service, but it's also about being able to live out the convictions that we have in our lives. And as we think about our government and the direction that it is going, it doesn't take a prophet to understand that our religious liberty is going to be challenged in the coming days. You just think with me about the COVID-19 crisis over this last spring, summer, and fall. Consider with me a governor in Nevada, a progressive governor, that has sought to it that 50% of casinos can, can meet but only 25% occupancy within a church can gather. Or consider with me another progressive governor in California that would say that churches can only assemble 25% of their building space, but businesses can exceed that. So as we think about government, of course, if it's made up of fallen people, it will fall short of God's standard for us. Well, here's a question for us. What are we to do with our government? So I've got the last or the fourth statement here, and that is Christians are to engage in government. The first thing we are to do is we are to pray for our leaders. First Timothy 2 verses 1 through 2 says, First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Christians have a responsibility to pray for those who are their leaders, whether they agree with them or not. And what is the aim of these prayers? As it says here, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. If you have been touched by the grace of God, if you are impacted by the gospel of Christ, then you are motivated to see this gospel be carried out through our country. So you want a government that will allow that to take place. Think of the book of Acts. What was it that allowed that gospel to spread? Historians will point to something called Pax Romana. All that means is Roman peace. There was some religious tolerance during that time that allowed people to be able to go and share the gospel with others. And during the first centuries, clearly that is one of the reasons why the gospel flourished. Think with me about Korea for a moment. Think of North Korea and South Korea. North Korea identifies themselves as an atheist country. I don't know that we would call South Korea a Christian country, but over the last 100, 120 years, the gospel Christianity has flourished in South Korea. Government matters, doesn't it? It allows that gospel message to go out. So as Christians, we want to be seeking a government that will help us to experience the freedoms to live out our faith. So we are to pray for our leaders. A second thing is, and that's probably what's prompting this message at the time he hears, we vote. And when we vote, we are declaring, This is how I believe God would have me vote. Let me look at these issues. Let me look at these candidates. Let me look at these platforms. And let me, with an open Bible, compare their views with the Bible's views and then vote accordingly. Now, I don't know President Donald Trump personally, nor do I know Vice President Joe Biden personally. I suspect that each of them would identify themselves as Christians. And I don't know them well enough. I don't know their heart well enough to say I agree with them. But one political scientist examined votes that each party makes. And they found that 89% of the times that a Republican will vote, they are voting in alignment with their platform. And 79% of all the times that a Democrat will vote, they are voting in alignment with their platform. It would be wise for us then, with an open Bible, to look at the different platforms that are represented there. When you consider the last four years of President Donald Trump Look at his record. Has he defended life? Has he defended religious liberty? Consider the people that he has positioned within the Supreme Court. Are those in alignment with the Scriptures? Consider the promises that Vice President Biden has made in the areas of abortion uh, to remove the Hyde Amendment and same-sex marriage and, and transgenderism and, and, and advancing those causes. And consider the implications of a Biden presidency on religious liberty. I agree with President Barack Obama when he said, Elections have consequences, and they will have consequences. Uh, President Trump, and and before him, President Obama, were were quick to sign executive orders. And if Vice President Joe Biden is elected, you can be sure that he would go on in the first hundred days of signing all sorts of executive orders. And what would those executive orders be in alignment with? But the platform of his very party. So when I say vote, I say we need to be informed. What does the Bible say and what do these platforms represent? But I mean, two other things too, though. As Christians, our hope is not having a political party establish a utopia here at this time. That utopia is coming. But it will not be ushered in by a political party or a presidential candidate. It will only be ushered in when the eternal president returns. And so as we consider voting, we have to vote with our eyes looking to the heavens, awaiting Jesus' return. Even Jesus himself said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. He certainly could have ushered in a political kingdom, but he didn't. The second thing I'd also say under this is our local vote is important too. Yes, election will have consequences on who serves as president, but don't minimize the local elections as well. Think with me of this last spring where our governor, Tony Evers, has offered orders to us, but there have been local sheriffs that have decided, I'm not going to put that into play here. I'm not going to have my deputies enforce that order. Think with me about school boards. Who you elect to the school board is a big deal on the sort of education that our students in our community get. And in 2020... Who you elect for your school board may actually determine if your children are in school or online. A third thing is we're to speak truth to our leaders. There are times in the Old Testament where God has raised up someone like Joseph. It's an amazing thought. Here's a God-fearing man that serves as the vice president to a pagan king there in Egypt. Or Daniel who served as an advisor to a Babylonian king, or Nehemiah, a cupbearer to a pagan king, or Esther and Mordecai, people who revered God and served in government. There were people like William Wilberforce, who was born again and used his influence to abolish slavery. There are other times in the scriptures where God has raised up people to speak truth to governing officials. You remember Moses? Where he would say to Pharaoh, this is a worship issue. God's people need to be out and be able to worship. And you remember the Old Testament prophets that would preach to these pagan kings, telling them to repent, and how John the Baptist confronted Herod's adulterous lifestyle. And Paul, how he preached to governors and kings. Now, in these cases, most of them, the people did not heed God's word. Nonetheless, God allowed them to know the truth clearly. And in America, we can do this. We get a chance to contact our city councilman, our state representative. even, Even the president, we can contact... And in a winsome, respectful, loving way, share what God's word says about a particular topic. And then finally, what is our responsibility to the government? It is to obey. And it says in Romans thirteen one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. First Peter two seventeen says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Titus 3 wants to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Are there exceptions to this? Of course there are. Peter said, we must obey God rather than man in Acts 5, Verse 29. Yet if a law, if an order, does not violate our conscience, then we are responsible to obey it. And the Bible would say, I think here in Romans 13:2, that to resist authorities is to resist God. So what are those laws? The, if they don't violate our conscience? we are responsible to obey them. And I think one of those big sticky ones for us this year has just been wearing masks. Wearing mask when we go to the store, I don't think we have much trouble with that. Mask when we go to a restaurant, we don't have much trouble with that. But, but wearing masks in church, now that's a, we, we struggle with that. And, and earlier this month, to, to try to take that out of the political arena, 250 doctors within our Green Bay community said, please, Sanitation, wash your hands, social distancing, masks. Would you you please do that? So we are responsible to obey our governor, our governor on this. Then finally, Jesus is the only ruler who can address the evil in our hearts. We began today by speaking about how God cares for us. Yes, he cares for us and providing for us. Yes, he cares for us by providing a family for us. But God's ultimate care for our souls is demonstrated in allowing us to address the wickedness within our own heart. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. That if we would repent, if we would cry out and place our faith in what Jesus has done for us, we could be forgiven and be declared Righteous, Listen to what Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We need a shepherd. We need a ruler, a perfect ruler and there's only one of those and it is Christ and I just invite you to a relationship with him and maybe you have a relationship with him and, and how is he directing your life how is he operating your life are you giving him rule well as we consider this passages this morning as we consider this message today let us not forget his desire to be president of your life. And would you allow him to do that? Would you surrender to him? As, as Ms. Vana comes and plays, let me lead us in a prayer. Father, as we think about this topic of government, it, it reveals to us how we are born with hearts that stray, that are wicked, that don't naturally obey you. So you've you've provided a structure for us in a way that would restrain this sin, restrain this evil. Now, one of the ways is just to go on life like that, but you've provided an ultimate way to deal with that evil heart by sending the eternal ruler, Jesus himself, Lord, we thank you for him. And so I pray for each person in our room today, have, if they haven't trusted you, it says, I want you to rule my life. I confess the sin in my life. I want to walk with you. You would give them an opportunity to do just that now. And friends, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you could follow along and pray something like this, Lord, I see my own heart and it strays from obeying you. It strays from what you want me to do. I struggle. I want to rule my own life. Would you please forgive me? Today, I want you to rule my life. And what you say, I want to go. May I have your strength to do that. Help me to walk in obedience with that and help me to follow you all the days of my life and into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.